You're listening to the Enterprising Expat. Stories of women who packed up their lives and moved abroad for love, a job, or a fresh start. What does it take to build a new life and business in a new country? What does it take to go from finding your feet to thriving? Find out how each woman did it. Be inspired, whether you're an expat or digital nomad, to bloom where you're planted. So um, why don't you start by introducing yourself and telling me what you do? So my name is Allison Luness and I write the website Paris Unraveled and I help people who want to move to France to navigate French bureaucracy and administration, get the right visa and give them the tools to create their dream life here. Perfect. And how long have you been doing that? I started the website in 2010, 2011. Well, I started writing it and then it became a business in 2012 um, and officially a company in 2013. Okay. So, but you've been away from home for, well, actually, no, that's the wrong way to put it because France is your home, correct? Now it is. From your birth country. (laughs) I'm trying to be diplomatic here. From your birth country for quite a while. Uh, 10 years this fall. I spent a year studying abroad in France. So nine, 10 months studying abroad my junior year of college. Um, And then I moved back right after I graduated, which was in the end of August, 2009. So it's already been 10 years total. Okay, let me take you back about 10 years. What was it that made you go back to France? So I, I studied abroad my junior year of college and I loved it. And I spent my whole second semester trying to figure out how I was going to come back and my whole senior year of college. It didn't matter to me how I came. I applied to lots of different things. I applied to a teaching program to teach English. I applied for a scholarship to do a research program. I applied to a master's degree when when the scholarship thing didn't work out. So for me, it was all about, I want to go to France. How can I make that happen? Now, as far as what drew me to France in the first place, I had always studied French, been really into French, and I really, I romanticized it as I think a lot of Americans do. And I mean, just a lot of people worldwide can do. Yes. But there was also something in the culture where I felt, I felt that it was a lot more aligned with my values in terms of the lifestyle you know, people not killing themselves at work, but also in terms of how people interacted with each other. I mean, things here emotionally, I felt, I felt that France was more almost like deeper and not the surface level friendliness that we get in the U.S. that a lot of times it's really hard to go deeper. Whereas France, like people are not surface level friendly to you. And then once you, once you do forge relationships, like you get that depth. and so. For me, I felt at the time that it was a lot more, you know, aligned with the way that I wanted to express myself. And I was also kind of seeking in French. I had a lot of things to express and I felt that learning French was, I was seeking a way to express things that I couldn't necessarily express in English. Oh, wow. That's, yes, that's, that's actually a cool concept. I, I went on holiday and I went to Fiji and it was amazing And then when I got back home, I was, I just felt like I should be traveling, not even traveling more, but there was just this kind of wanderlust in me. And I was trying to think of an English word to express exactly how I felt. And I couldn't find one. And then I think there was a lady who said there was a German expression for it. So I, I, yeah, 
is there there's a, German, there's a German word for everything. I yes. love it. I, I know, I know, I started learning German for 20 minutes on, du- <laughs> on, on Duolingo like a couple of weeks ago because I've always loved the sound of German, but I've never studied it beyond like bitte. Yeah. <laughs> yes. but but yeah I love the idea that like in German you get like these really long and complex like juicy words that can describe like the most specific poetic thing yes Uh, and and then you feel like like sort of like your emotions are valid because there is a word for it you're like that is exactly how I am feeling Right. But it's also, I mean, it's something in the expression too. And I mean, in English, like, for example, we tend to be really enthusiastic and positive and, and put a light spin on things. Whereas if, which makes it really difficult if you want to express things that are, that are serious and, you know, or dark or whatever. Yeah. For me, I felt that the thing, especially like the things that I was reading in my French classes, you know, the the Little Prince and yes. Victor Hugo poetry and all of those things like really spoke to me on a really deep level. Yeah. Um, a lot more than than anything I was experiencing in English. And OK, so let's dive into I know that you set your business up in France, but I mean, you also you grew up in the U.S. and and you've just spoke about how the cultures are very different. So tell me a little bit more about is the process finding clients online that the world we work in, is it different when you are reaching out to a French audience? I don't really reach out to French people. My business focuses on helping people who want to move to France, need help dealing with the French bureaucracy. So it's primarily Americans. Occasionally I'll deal with like, for example, a company that wants to bring somebody over or a couple where one of the partners is French and the other is American and they want to figure out how to get, how to navigate the visa stuff. But generally speaking, I'm mostly dealing with, um, with clients in, in Anglophone countries who speak English, um, need the help because they don't, they don't speak the language or they don't speak it well enough and they don't know what, they don't know what to do. Yeah. This is something I touched on in the interview before yours. It's, do you feel, because I, you work with a lot of individuals and couples, do you feel that it is easier to sort of integrate as an expat when your partner or your support system is somebody who is local? So you, you're married to a Frenchman, correct? Yes. So was it easier for you to kind of... <sighs> settle into everyday life and, and, you know, have those social doors open for you because you, you have somebody who's there with you saying, okay, look, this is kind of the way things are done here. Is that something you experienced? Yes and no. I mean, I came here, I came here independently and I already spoke French before I arrived in France. Mm -hmm. Um, Pretty, pretty fluently. And for a long time, I really resisted getting involved with Americans, getting involved in expat group. Um, At the time, I wasn't, you know, when I first arrived, I was working in, I was working in a French school. I was enrolled in a French school directly. So I didn't have other Americans around me. And I didn't want to get involved in the expat thing because I wanted to integrate. I wanted to speak French. Like my French was really good. And I didn't want to hang out with Americans whose French wasn't really good. Um, 
And I mean, and you know, looking back, obviously that was 10 years ago. I was really young. Like it was, it was kind of snobby. Um, <laughs> what but, yeah, well, but I also, but it also became pretty lonely because I didn't make a lot of friends. Mm. Um, and you know, it's really, it, it's hard to make friends with French people, not because they're, not because they're not friendly, but well, because they're hard, it's hard to develop those deep friendships and it's hard to, how should I put this? Um, it's just, it's just hard to get to know people, especially as an adult. I mean, when, when you're in school and you know, you're in proximity to people every single day, have something in common to talk about and like you live on a college campus and whatever it's really easy and then once you become an adult it's hard but then if you're in a you know a a new adult in a whole other country in another language and another culture it can get really lonely so there's that and then you know when I got married obviously like my husband has friends um that we see and we hang out with um and they're really nice people but at the same time they're his friends Right. And I really, it makes me nervous when, and you know, I I know of a lot more people, a lot more couples where it's, you know, the woman is American and the man is French. I think it can be really isolating Mm -hmm. to come to a new country and to be with just the person you married because, you know, it's, it's his family, but people who live near the in-laws, you know, it's it's his family all the time. It's his friends, um, whatever. And you can really start to feel like the outsider and have trouble breaking away from that and creating your own friendship groups and your own relationships, especially like if you get into having kids really soon. Yes. Um, and so, and some women, not any of my clients, but I definitely hear stories here and there, you know, get into bad situations where they've come to France because they're married. They're dependent on, so they're dependent on their husbands for their visa. The visa gives them the right to work, but maybe they don't work because they, or they don't work a lot because they don't speak the language enough. And then if the husband cheats on her or is abusive or um, is financially abusive Mm. or, you know, starts treating her poorly. A lot of times it happens like after she gets pregnant, you know, that can, that can cause a lot of problems. And especially when women, you know, if, if they get divorced, they're going to have to leave. Yeah. If they get divorced, if they get divorced in the first couple of years and they have, and they have kids, like where are they going to go? And that's really complicated. And that's something that I really don't, don't like to see. And so what I try to caution people who are moving here to be with a partner moving here to get married, but they haven't been in a relationship that long, I try to advise them, look, come on your own visa, you know, with your own right to work or with your own finances, because, you know, then if something happens, you're not dependent on him, on on him or, or, I mean, it can be the same and it can be the same situation with a job. Like you come here for a job, the, the company sponsors you it turns out to be a toxic work environment. And then what do you do? If you leave the job, you have to leave France. You're stuck and they have you and they know that it can be a really difficult situation. So 
I forget what the original question was and I don't know if I answered it. <laughs> you did, you did, but we really went because nobody wants to talk about that. I think also people romanticize the expat life a little bit like, oh, well, you don't have to do anything and you'll be in this lovely country and you'll be, uh, you know, a tourist for the next two or three years. And it's like, well, n- no. After yeah. the first month of being there, you're like, I oh, well, I don't really like your friends or I don't want these people in my house who only talk about what the hell you're doing at work. Yeah. Well, I mean, even if, you know, even if they're perfectly nice people, it's yeah. still good to have your own friends and have a separate life. And the other thing that that can get overlooked, too, is that even if you do go outside of outside of your couple and develop your own friendships in the expat community, a lot of people leave Yeah, when you're an expat and you're involved in the expat community. You know, some people come for two years, some people come for five years. So there's a lot of term. It's a really small community, even in a city like Paris, where, you know, you have a lot of English speakers that that you can make connections with. But there's a lot of there's a lot of turnover. And so there are some people who are here, you know, some people who are here for life, some people who are here for a year and then some people who are in between. And so it's constantly you're constantly having to make new friends and integrate new people into your group. And that's hard too, because, you know, you get to really appreciate some people and and grow close to some people and then they go away. And and it's not the same, you know, even if you can stay in touch easily with Facebook and, you know, modern technology, it's, it's not the same when, when people leave. It really isn't. It really isn't. I once read an article and the lady said one of the things she's learned about being an expat for her is that her friendships, however deep, are. she always looks at them as temporary mm-hmm. because she knows she's going to leave in two or three years. And then she just, you know, it's difficult to keep up that level of commitment. That just doesn't work for me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just don't believe I, I, it, it's not much of a friendship for me. If like after three years, it's like, nah, well, now we're on a kind of tag you on Facebook. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's hard too, because especially with, you know, with different time zones and, and things like that, you know, if I want to, you know, if I, if I want to call a friend in the U S I have to be up until, you know, they're going to be at work until five or six (laughs) o'clock. So that leaves me, I have to, you know, I have to call them at like practically midnight my time or maybe on their lunch break, maybe if we can, if we can coordinate and get it together. But for the most part, you know, what does that mean? That means maybe we can call each other on the weekends. Well, right now my son is little, but pretty soon it's going to be sports things on the weekends and, and birthday parties. And, you know, we already call, we already call my parents every weekend in the afternoon. So there's, there's only so many possibilities for, for doing that international communication in these situations. Yeah, that, that's right. And it's like, if you put it in the calendar, it kind of loses its appeal. Because, I mean, if, if it's not family, it kind of can become like a chore. <laughs> and that's well, not the kind I of mean, conversation you want to have. It can be a chore, but it's also... But it's I want to be trying to be diplomatic. <laughs> I have no such... <laughs> I have no such pretensions. Oh, but, but it's also that I tend to find, as the person who moved away, as the person who's in, like, hmm. the way different time zone, it's become my responsibility to maintain those relationships. And a lot of times, Interesting. you know, if I drop the ball in my relationships with my friends or my, or my family members in the U S like they don't, they don't contact me. They don't call me. Yeah. 
or they'll only call me like if somebody's going to die, <laughs> like, yes, you know, which is terrible, but yeah. Yeah. You're like, now but, you have the afterthought. Right. And it, well, the onus is, the onus is on me to, to make the call or to start the communication. And I mean, that, that's hard because it makes you feel like people don't want to talk to you or like, you know, international communication isn't expensive or difficult anymore. Yeah. Um, so there's no, it used to be, it used to be, so it used to make sense. Like I would pay for the Skype, you know, phone number to be able to call you or whatever, but, but now it's not. I feel like people don't want to talk to you and don't miss you and aren't thinking about you. It can. When you come back to the States, how long does it take you to feel in the loop again? How long does it take you to feel kind of settled? You know, like you're getting back into the swing of things. I don't know that I ever really do because Mm -hmm. it's not like, it's, it's not normal life when we're there. Like we go and we stay with my parents and and the past two years when we've gone, um, it's just been me and my son that have gone back. My husband wasn't able to join us the, the years before he did. But, you know, it's not, and we go, we've been lucky to go for about a month each time, but it's not really, it's not normal. It's a very, um, like intense period of activity where everybody wants to see us every single day. So like, you know, one day we'll go and we'll spend a couple hours at my grandparents. Next day we'll go out to dinner, uh, to, to dinner with my aunt and then stay over and whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and do something like go to the farm. The next day we'll have lunch with one of my teachers. It's very much all the social interaction that I don't get with them throughout the year, like condensed into three weeks. And then Um, you need a holiday from it. And then, yeah. And it's very, and it's very exhausting. And so like the first week when we get back, like my mom will sometimes, you know, have everybody over for dinner and we'll just like have pizza or something so I can see my extended family. And then I'll make appointments to visit with everybody more individually. So that's the first week. And then it's kind of settled down a little bit for a week or a week or so. Sometimes we go away somewhere else for a couple of days and then it's time to come back. So everybody calls me up again. I want to see you one more time before you go. And so then there's another like intense period at the very end where, you know, everybody, everybody wants to see us again. And like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot. I I find it a mission when I go back home. And then I also feel that I can be crotchety, let's call it, because I feel that I've come all the way, I've flown all the way to Southern Africa and you know where my house is, but you still want me to drive that extra distance and go to your house. And I'm like, yeah. can't we meet in the middle? But that is just me. Like, <laughs> and I, I will admit that I am not the easiest person to get along with. I, I, I can live with that. But that's, so, but that's so true. And I mean, it, it's kind of the same thing. It's like, you know, with the communication, like it doesn't cost anybody anything to send you an email or a text message anymore. So you know, like why, why would the onus be completely on us? Like, yeah, I can do it for the older people, the younger ones. Yeah. I'm like, no, you're taking the piss. You're, you're just, <laughs> I'm not doing yeah. it. Or like, you know, plan some, plan something and I'll show up, but yeah. 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 But if you want me to wear pants, it better be special. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Like I work from home. So. Yeah. <laughs> Before we get on to pants, let's get back into your business. So you had a couple of pivots in when you were from when you started your blog to actually 
helping people integrate and come to France. Tell me about the different iterations your business went through and and what you learned each time. So I started out because I came I came to France as a student enrolled independently in a master's program. The difference between my first time in a study abroad program and the second time when I came back to do my master's was that I had zero help or support from anybody. Um, I was in a public university. Public universities have one person or two people in the international relations office to help every single international student in the university at all levels. And there's really no sense of you know, in the U.S., like you're, it's almost like you're a customer in the university and they, and they want to like cater to the student experience and make sure you have everything you need. There's none of that in France. I was left to my own devices to figure out like the visa stuff and the health insurance and working and finding an apartment and all of this stuff that like it was it was so there was hardly any information online at the time. The information was often out of date or not accurate. In a lot of these administrations, they don't actually pay anybody to answer questions. So you can't, it's not like there's any, anybody you, you can try to call or send an email, but if you get a response, it's really rare and the person might not actually know what they're talking about. It was, it was really frustrating and a real, a real challenge, like a pretty regular set of challenges to get anything done. So I started writing about the experience because on the other hand, a full year of tuition in a French university and including a year of student health insurance was 450 euros or so approximately. So compared to the master's degree that I would might have otherwise done in the U S which would have been 45 or $50,000, I was saving 99% of my education. So, and I studied, I studied fairy tales. I did my master's thesis on, on fairy tales there was no reason to spend $50,000 on that degree as interesting and fulfilling as it was at the time. (laughs) So I thought, well, if, if people knew they could do a master's degree in France and save 99% of the cost of what it would, what it would cost in the U S maybe more people would come or even the people who otherwise would do a program like, you know, the study abroad programs I did, a Columbia master's program in Paris or NYU or whatever. So I started writing about how to do it. And I initially wanted to publish it as a book, like a travel guide book. And I thought, well, this information is going to change pretty regularly. What if I did it as a website and a blog? Mm-hmm. So I did that. And I, and I started following, I started following like a lot of internet marketing people and, you know, how to make money online and, and things about like putting advertising in Google ads and, and stuff like that to try to figure out how I could make it into a, a business. And I did it and nothing happened. <laughs> like I didn't know anything about marketing. I didn't know how I would even attempt to reach people. Yes. Because, you know, my clients are anybody in America who is thinking that maybe they want to move to France. Like how do I even find those people? Right. Cause before Facebook ads was really a thing. And so as I developed it more and more, I thought, okay, well, you know, I could offer services to go along with it. So I started thinking about, you know, okay, I could, I could offer services to other people who want to enroll in these master's programs. And I did that for a little while. And then I added things like general administrative help for people who needed help with random, random French administration stuff. 
And the issue was that there weren't enough. I, I didn't feel like I had enough potential clients for the student, the university service. I got a couple each year, but I didn't feel like there was enough who could pay me money yeah. um, to make it into a viable business. So I shifted to doing more of the hourly consulting stuff and that was okay, but I didn't love it. And then people started asking me, well, you have a business in France. How did you do that? And so I started helping people set up their businesses, helping and especially helping people to get visas to start their businesses. So that involves writing a business plan, helping people develop their business idea. Um, And because I had done a lot of internet marketing and by this time and sort of business development courses online to Mm. figure out who I was serving, Mm. um, you know, I was able to use that to, to help people develop their own businesses and, and figure out how they could come to France to do that. So, so I sort of pivoted into, into helping people with basically half business coaching, half French admin, get you the visa. um, Yeah. Yeah. It's sometimes you will see these fabulous adverts and it'll be like, if you sign up for my program, you will be making X amount in three months and everybody should make six figures and I will help you, you know, take your online business to the sky and beyond. And I fell for a lot of that back in 2011. <laughs> and, and I think, and I think that used to be true with like Google advertising and like passive income and back in like 2004 when nobody was doing it. Yes. Um, I think that used to be really, it used to be really easy to get in early and make a ton of money and then, then teach it to everybody else, but it doesn't work anymore because everybody's changed their algorithm and it's not a thing. And you can learn it on YouTube now. Why would I, why would I pay, pay for it? You, somebody's done a free video on YouTube. I, I don't. Yeah. yeah. But um, when you were changing from doing the hourly admin tasks to, you know, pivoting to offering your coaching services, how important was it? How do I put this? What importance did you put on the fact that you actually wanted to be happy in the services that you were offering? So, you know, you know, we can all go out and get a nine to five and do the work, put in our hours, earn our money and, and it's over. So when you were pivoting, how much importance did you put on the fact that, you know what, this business of mine is not as joyful as, as I thought it would be. And that's got to be an important part of my business. And was there any pushback against that when you discussed it with people? Um, yeah. So I put a lot of importance on it for a couple of reasons. One is around, it was right before I got pregnant with my son. So around five years ago, almost, um, I went through a really bad depression And I had started my business and I had a couple of clients at the time. And during this time, it was about two or three months where like I was, the only thing I did was I watched Law and Order SVU, all 15 seasons or however many there were at the time. Which isn't the most joyful program either. No, it probably didn't help. (laughs) Um, And during that time, one person and... I just did, um, I just actually did some, some healing on this and it turned out this person was the first official client that I built through my business. And 
it was almost like the original sin of my business, which was she wanted my help applying for university. And her first deadline was right around a couple weeks into the the depression that I had. And I missed her deadline. And I didn't, I I missed her. It was her first deadline out of several deadlines for several universities. Right. Now, this was by no means, obviously it was not good. Um, It was by no means ruining her dream of coming to France. She already had EU citizenship. Mm. There were like four other programs that I was helping her to apply to, but we missed, I missed this one. And she went crazy, crazy in the sense that I, she had paid, she she had paid, um, I think I was charging her the whopping sum of $350 for helping her with, with like five or six applications. And she had paid a 50% deposit up front. So she had paid me about 180. Yeah. And I gave her a refund. Yes. And I apologized. And she started, she started harassing me on social media. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell everybody you're a fraud. I'm going to, um, she's, she set up like a Facebook message with every single person she knew. Like, I'm going to tell everybody like, in France that you ripped me off and tried to steal your money. I was like, I haven't tried to steal your money because I gave you a refund and, and all this other stuff. Mm. She started sending me PayPal requests for money for like missed wages and like missed wages for work that she had to miss because she had to deal with this situation, this deadline that I missed Um, and pain and suffering that was it. No, she, it was missed wages because she was really upset about the whole situation and she had to take off of work at, at, you know, and so this was like part of her pain and suffering thing. Right. Yeah. And, oh, and then she had to mail something to France for like 50 or $60 and she wanted me to pay for that. And so I just ignored it, but it really got to me and it really shook my confidence. I was already in a pretty fragile emotional state. It took me a long time to you know, cause obviously I felt, you know, I felt bad. I didn't want to miss the deadline. And, and it took me a long time to, to sort of heal from that and realize like, you know, okay, I was human. I was actually going through a thing like, mm. you know, so there was that situation. And then there were just other situations too, where when I was doing the admin stuff where, you know, I, I, proc- I put it off, I procrastinated because I didn't like doing it. And so sometimes it would drag out forever. And it wasn't necessarily a problem, but it's also like the nature of some of these projects. Like if I'm applying, if if I'm helping somebody apply to health insurance in the French system, the form takes three minutes to fill out Mm. the initial form. So then you you fill that out, you send it off. Six weeks later, you're going to get a letter back in the mail requesting more information and with another form to fill out. So then you fill that one out, that takes five minutes and then you send it back. And then Eight weeks after that, you're going to get a request for a birth certificate. And then you send that off. And then, so each time it's 10 minutes of work, maybe. Yes. But it's a project that drags out. Absolutely. For six, for six to eight months. And so I also got into like, well, how do I even bill for that? And if I did like a five hour retainer or a 10 hour retainer up front, but then, you know, people were using up th- that time. Like I had somebody come back to me a year later he he had only used up two of his hours on a 10 hour retrain, retainer. And then he came back to me a year later and like, okay, do this now. And so I sent him a bill and he was like, but I already paid you. And I was like, yeah, but that was a year ago. Like, right. Yes. So, yes. It, so it was, so it's the kind of thing, like it became really difficult to bill for. 
things in that way. And I didn't like doing it and it took forever. And it just, it wasn't, it wasn't working for me at all. Yeah. So finally I put together, I put together some packages and it was really hard to start turning people away for some of that stuff that I was doing because people would come to me, especially I had worked in an office doing expat taxes for about two years when I first finished my master's. And so people would come to me for that. And I was cheaper, you know, I'm not certified, you know, back when I was first starting out, like after I had just left the job, I was still pretty up to date on, on what the laws were and things like that. So people would come to me for their taxes. And I finally had to put my foot down and be like, I'm not doing taxes anymore. And that was really hard because then I'd get requests. Like, I want to pay you money to do my taxes. And I would, I would say no, but at the same time I'm saying no, I'm like, but I need money because I still have bills to pay. <laughs> yeah. so it's hard to, you know, it's hard to say no and like switch gears into something that you really want to do and something that you think is going to be more fulfilling when you're like, but how can I say no to something that gives me money? Yeah. Uh, I think that is the business owner's dilemma. It's harder online as well, because sometimes you can't just, it takes a while for you to keep getting those referrals and you've got to kind of build that up. But yeah, that's, that's definitely, I, it's something yeah. I faced as well. Yeah. And finally, I just switched again into something that I think, well, it's the same thing, but I, I just kind of tweaked my program a little bit. So I think that it's really good now. And I just got again, and I know it's coming up because it's testing my commitment to this new thing, but I just got again, two requests in my inbox this week. Oh, can you do my taxes or do you know somebody who will? Oh, wow. I haven't done taxes in seven years, people. Like, I can't help you. I don't know anything about taxes anymore. <laughs> is it too early to ask you what the new tweak is? Is it still kind of in the world? No. Um, so I had, I've been offering programs that are to put together people's visa application for starting a business in France. And so typically we would work on this for six to eight weeks. That was my ideal. And I just launched a new thing, which is visa application in a week. So basically it's taking that six week timeline and condensing it into seven days where wow. I, I collect the information. The client does homework before to give me the information. Um, we have a couple of calls via Zoom that I record, you know, to get clarity. And then I deliver a complete visa application in, you know, by the end of the week. So we're testing that out. I did it for one person and it went really well. And it was super satisfying because it was a really quick turnaround. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I got it in and then got it off my plate right away. And, and he was really happy. And so, but yeah, so it's like, I need to just offer this to everybody because some people do need the longer time period to put everything together. And I'm, I'm still going to offer that, but, but most people don't. And so, and, and most people want to want to get it done and it's better for me. Yeah. So I think, I think this is going to be a really good way to, I think it sounds fantastic because I'm also in a, um, a few digital nomad groups and there's always these questions about what can I do in certain EU countries? What are the rules? What do I need to send? What do I need to do? How easy is it to get to, I don't know, France, if I'm in Sweden and all of this kind of thing. You know, and it's just like people throwing in about their experiences, but no one really has any clear answers. <laughs> I mean, I run a Facebook, I run a Facebook group called Americans in France. There are about 6,500 people in it. And I have to really police and I pay close attention to what happens in the group. It's super active. Yeah. Um, and I have to, I, I've had to set some really clear boundaries on advice giving because yeah, there are a lot of people who will come in 
a lot of people will come to the group specifically because they know I run it and that, that I'll, that I'll give, that I'll give advice and that I can offer them a call right to them if they need help. But yeah, I get a lot of people who, who come in, who try to give advice and who don't know what they're talking about or who like, or who only have their own experience, which, you know, can be fine, except that the rules in France are not spelled out at, are not really spelled out anywhere. Yeah. Their implementation can vary from what consulate you're going to, to what, um, what prefecture you're going to, where you're going to be in France, what your situation is, what your nationality is. And so, well, generally speaking, like broadly, you know, one person's experiences might be vaguely useful to somebody else. Mm. You know, generally speaking, I, I warn people and I say, look, you know, if you've only dealt with your own visa, mm. please don't advise somebody because, you know, especially if you haven't been here for five or 10 years and like seen things. Yeah. Yeah. Seen, yeah. seen the, the various stories that people have told. Like if you did your own visa last month and this is how it went, like, yeah, but that's not necessarily how it's going to go for... Oh my God, absolutely. Or, or, you know, well, if you, if you did it last month, then, then it's probably more applicable, but if you did it three years ago and, you know, and haven't done it and haven't done anything at a simple renewal, you know, that, that advice isn't applicable to anybody. Yeah, absolutely. If yeah. If your experience is your own, then you are an expert in like that one time that, that you got your own visa. So what is the thing that drives you crazy the biggest mistake people make and then they come to you and they want you to sort it out. Okay. So two things. One is whenever I ask somebody, whenever somebody posts about their situation in my Facebook group, almost 90% of the time, my first question is going to be, what's your visa? What's your visa situation? What type of visa do you have? And almost inevitably the response is, I have a long stay visa. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, but that's not a thing. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is a thing in the sense that all the, all visas that are 12 months are long stay visas, but there are like 15 different kinds of long stay visas. So just saying long stay, like literally doesn't mean anything to me. Got it. So that's like the thing that drives me mad almost daily. And I don't see that problem going anywhere anytime soon. In terms of the biggest problem that I see is people... One is they listen to people who don't know what they're talking about. Um, and they don't think of a long-term plan when they're moving. And so when I talk to people to talk about why they want to move here, what they want to accomplish, what they're going to do for work and to fulfill themselves while they're here. And I use that to suss out like, okay, what's the best visa type for you? What's the best path forward? Are you thinking about potentially staying here long-term or is this really like a one-year or two-year project for you? Mm. And what happens is, you know, when people, when people come and they don't have that thought process and they don't have that reflection before they arrive, they can get into a situation where one, they're doing something that's not super kosher, like working remotely for a U.S. company without declaring anything when, when they don't technically have the right to work in France. and. Yeah. And so they get themselves into a situation where they don't have the right visa and then it's really hard to fix. It can be really hard to fix. Right. Um, and then they have to either go home and get a new visa or they have to go through a complicated change of status project pro a process that takes a really long time. And if they go home, then they lose the time. You have to be in France for five years consecutively without going back to get a new visa 
before you can apply for residency or naturalization. And so anytime somebody has to go home to get a new visa, uh, that clock starts over. And so, you know, one thing that can be really irritating is, you know, if somebody's been here for a year or two, but they weren't on the right visa type, and now we have to figure out how to fix it, it can result, it can result in them losing that time. Wow. You know, if I'm, if I'm telling people something that they really don't want to hear, um, you know, it's, it's, it can be hard to convince them. Um, right. Right. So, okay. So I want to pivot a little bit and, and then talk about you and, um, do you consider yourself an expat or do you kind of consider yourself very much French and American? Oh, I don't know. Um, I don't like the term expat. A lot of people don't. What would you call yourself? I mean, I'm an immigrant. Okay. Okay. A lot of people would bulk at that term as well. I know, but... It's so loaded. It is such a loaded... All of these terms are now so loaded. But that's... But I mean, and that's why... And that's why I want to use it. Because, I mean, there's... You know, there... There's such a privilege attached to the idea of being an expat. When, like, when I think of expat, I think of... And and I mean, there's like, there's all these debates and articles written about like, well, why do like, you know, why do, why do white people get to be expats and and everybody else is an immigrant and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I think of expat in, in, in the, in the Americans in Paris community, an expat is typically somebody who was sent here for a couple of years by their company. You know, it's a really high level of employment. They're getting a very high salary. The company is paying all their moving expenses. They pay for the kids to be in an international school. It's a three three to six year contract and all that Mm. and Mm. all that stuff. And it's really, to me, that's a level of like privilege and separateness and not necessarily a desire to be in France specifically or. Right. It's like a short term economic decision. Exactly. And, and a lot of time, and, and it may be people who like go to multiple countries and, you know, who just have that traveling lifestyle, but don't have a particular affinity for France. And it, to me, it's a very different, um, it's a very different thing. And, and, and before I probably would have called myself an expat, but, but I don't think that's, I don't think that's accurate. And and that kind of leads me into my next question. What what was the discussion like or the talk like with your family when you were, you know, settling in in France and you didn't want to be anywhere else and then you were getting married in France? Did they have the expectation that you would be, quote unquote, going back home anytime soon? Um, yeah, I think until, I think probably until I got married, at least, or yeah. maybe, um, I mean, I, w- I was pretty temporary about it for the first couple of years, the first two or three years. I was still applying to graduate school in the U.S. I wasn't really sure if or how I was going to be able to stay, but I didn't really, I didn't really involve them in the discussion. Or the, <laughs> like it wasn't, it wasn't really like a negotiation with my family. It was just like you know, this is uh, it. I'm going to, I'm going to France to do my master's, and I mean, they weren't, they weren't paying for it. They, they helped me with a little bit of like you know, my mom's bank statement helped me to get my visa. But aside from that, like they, they weren't supporting me anymore. Right. Aside from paying for the occasional trip home. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and my parents have always been very good about independence. You know, they never, they never once told me like, you know, don't pay, 
tens of thousands of dollars a year for an educate for a French degree because but I mean yeah. as as business owners, people working for ourselves, we are prone to burn both both ends of the candle. So what is a way that you take care of yourself? Um, I've been doing a lot of journaling and meditation. I don't do it all every day, but I have a lot of guided meditations and even just like really relaxing meditative music on my, on my phone. And I'll listen to those before I go to bed. And then resources you use for running your business. What are a couple of apps or things like that, that just keep you on track or you would just be lost without them? I use Zoom all the time. I use, I'm in, I'm in Facebook, like an insane amount of time, like six hours a day or something ridiculous. Um, Running my, running my group, but also like, you know, potential clients will message me on there. I use all of my business email is on Gmail. And then just my website, like through, through WordPress, through, I have a membership portal on my site that hosts um, tutorials and classes and um, workshops that I've hosted. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Acuity, Acuity that I use to schedule my, my calls. Acuity. I'll put some of those in the link. So why don't you just tell me how people can reach you and get in touch with you? Um, my group on Facebook is Americans in France. And that's like, there's a lot of resources. I mean, tons and thousands of posts asking questions about everything. Um, I'm pretty visible in there. So I tend to hop on people's questions and encourage people to message me from the group if, if I think I can offer them further assistance. And my, my business Facebook page is Paris Unraveled. That's fantastic. Okay, Alison, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. One day I really want to get more into what you studied, fairy tales, because (laughs) I, I, I truly love fairy tales. Thank you for listening to The Enterprising Expat. You can help the show grow and reach more people by sharing this episode with your friends, supporting us on social media, or leaving a rating and review in whatever your favorite podcast catcher is. Cheers, and I'll see you in two weeks.